the Bible is where you're seated. It's page 552, if you'd like to look on there. Uh, this is a fairly complicated passage, so it would be good for you to have your Bibles open in front of you as we go through this. Uh, and also, as my introduction, I don't have one that pertains to this. Um, an introduction, uh, it's just going to be an announcement, and then I'm going to read this, and we're going to start to look at it. So uh, my announcement is, as we're moving towards membership, I would highly encourage you fill out the form that's on the city. Uh, the reason why we're doing that is because it asks all, most of the questions that I'm going to ask you when you come to give me your testimony and hear how you understand who Jesus is. So by writing them out, one, it gives me a place to talk to you from, and it can, please take this the right way, shorten our time together. Please take that the best possible way you can. Because <laughs> what's happening is we're having a mass uh, membership so I have a lot of people. Now, once this, you know, a few times, that we, once we've received a few members in this, a few mass members, then it, there's more time freed up to take more time with that. So I highly encourage you to fill out that form. And you can, if you're not wordy, you don't have to be wordy. Just sort of go through it and answer. And if there's things that you put, like I said, how, you know, how do you understand who Jesus is? And you put my favorite color is orange. Well, then, good, there's something we can talk about because... <laughs> didn't answer that question. So, so take that as the introduction to this passage. Um, this, is, this section and the section we looked at last week are probably the most complicated teachings of Jesus uh, that we have. Um, and people build entire theologies just off of these sections. And so it's really important that we understand this. We understand it in the historical context, but you also understand how does this apply to us? What, how, when we read this, we don't just read it as a history of this is something that happened, but how does it transform us now, today? So please listen. I'm going to read a long section, uh, Mark 13, beginning at verse 14. I'm going to read the rest of the chapter through 37. Um, it says, it begins, But when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house, to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take the cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been seen from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders, to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Be on your guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And they will send out angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn this lesson. 
as soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the cock crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I will say to all, stay awake. So I also ask in my sermon that you just follow the last two words of that. Um, But you can see how complicated this passage is. So uh, as we go into this, let me just pray as we look at this and ask God to help us understand this. Lord, you are the almighty God, and you chose out of your grace to communicate things to us. And as we come to this passage, we desire to understand, because we know that this passage speaks about Jesus, our great Savior. And we ask that we would understand this. And it wouldn't be head knowledge, it would be knowledge that would drive us to Christ and to rest in him more. In his name we pray, amen. So, in this passage, it begins with this phrase, in, uh, um, but when you see the abomination of desolation. And this is some of our problem when we read uh, many passages in scriptures. We read them and we think immediately the first application is to me. And we forget the historical context of what's going on. So if you were uh, one of the disciples of Jesus and you heard this phrase, it means something completely different to them than it does to you. You would just say, that's crazy, let's just move on. But to them, this means something that is spoken about in the Old Testament. It's actually in Daniel 11. It's actually in Daniel 7 and 9, 11, 13. It's all through the book of Daniel. Daniel 11.13 says, uh, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolation. Uh, This is a prophecy that Daniel was speaking to as Daniel is led by the Holy Spirit looking forward in time that this is something significant that's going to happen. But what is amazing is this is fulfilled multiple times before 70 A.D. Antiochus Epiphanes, he set up a pagan altar in 168 B.C., so roughly 200 years before the Gospel of Mark was written, this prophecy was fulfilled. What Antiochus Epiphanes did, and uh, what he did was he got a pig and he brought it into the Jewish temple, and he built an altar, and he sacrificed a pig on the altar. 
you can see if you know anything about the Jews that that is an abomination to what God called the Jews to do and how they were called to live. This happened later in the context of what we're looking at in 70 AD when Titus, a Roman general, did the same thing, went in there and set up a pagan altar in the temple of the Almighty God. Now, we've talked about this before, that the temple to the Jews represented the place that you meet God. This was it. And it was the sign that God is with us because they could point to that temple. God is with us because of that. So anytime something like this happened, it was shocking. And that's what's going on. So as we read this, we see that Jesus is saying really some crazy things, even to those in the first century, that they really can't grasp. And this is what they can't grasp. And this is stuff that we can't grasp either, that there is going to be evil, and it's going to destroy the temple. And Judea and Jerusalem will be wiped out. We can't understand that. And then the other thing we really can't comprehend is what is Jesus' command to the people there? Flee. Run. So imagine you have this temple that represents God's presence, and Jesus is saying that's going to be destroyed. And when it's destroyed, when you see these things happen, I'm not telling you to hold your ground and fight. I'm telling you, run for the hills. And we see this is specifically in the context because it's saying, run to the hills. Now, wrongly, people will say, like, well, we live around hills, and somehow we're going to be safe when this is only speaking about the day that Jesus returns. But it's not. This is speaking about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Flee. It, even the, how they describe a house. When you go down the stairs, do not go into your house. How many of you have stairs on the outside of your house from your second floor to your floor's floor, and that's the only way you get there? Okay. First century, that is how houses were made. So he's telling them, I want you to be so concerned when you see this happen that you don't even go down your stairs and go back into your house, that when you see this happen, you run. But are you able to tell in, in who you and I are as people that, that sort of it goes against who we are? Because our thought is, if something that is that holy is going to be destroyed, shouldn't we fight? But Jesus is saying, no, no, no. These people have been warned long enough. This is coming. And Jesus is telling people, run and flee, because you cannot stop this. So he commands them to flee. Uh, Josephus, an early historian, writes about this. And he talks about how after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, that 97,000 people were taken into captivity, were walked out of Jerusalem and Judea and taken into captivity. 97,000. 1.1 million people were slaughtered. Can you see why, even in this, this is the compassion of Jesus saying, get out. That is an 11% success rate. I did lousy in school. I always got above 11%. That is a low number. 11% of the people in Judea 
survive. This is a horrible calamity. And you read historically what happened, that people would kill their family members because they knew they were going to be slaughtered by the Roman army. Jesus' compassion is in this passage. Don't go back into your house. Nursing mothers, be concerned. Get out fast. Run. Because the destruction that is coming is complete. Jesus' compassion was to show that he is with his people even when they face suffering. Sometimes we think that compassion means that we don't face any of our consequences, any natural consequences that come to us <laughs> because of our rebellion and sin. We think, well, someone needs to have compassion on me and just take these away. A much better understanding is what's happening here is that Jesus is having compassion on his people. He is warning of, their, of people's rebellion, and he is saying, I am with you, and I'm telling you to run. Compassion is a community that is walking with you as you suffer. And some might be health, some things you did not bring on in your life. Some things are specific things that you and I bring on because of our own actions. I know some of you are uh, wrestle with just the idea of God and God being compassionate. And your first question as we look at this passage might be, if Jesus is God, why did he not just stop this destruction and suffering? That's a really good question. If Jesus is really God, why, did, why is there suffering at all? If Jesus is really God, why doesn't he make our life completely pleasant? Why doesn't he do that? What you're asking is that you're asking Jesus to show himself God by making your life perfect, and then in that, you will have no need for God. Uh, I know my own heart. If everything in my life was pleasant, if I had more money I knew what to do with, if I had a healthy family, if I had a job that was perfect with no problems, if I didn't even have to work, this is a prosperity gospel. That's not the message of the Bible. But I know my own heart, if I had those things, why would I seek after God? Why would I sense any need for anything beyond me? Because I can control everything in my life. And this is what's happening to the Jews. What they see as uh, the complete uh, visual, structural representation of God with them will be destroyed. And what will they do? What we forget is that our freedom, our salvation, is won only through suffering. It is. And no matter who you are in this room, uh, you will have suffering in your life. It may be great and traumatic, it may be minimal. Uh, you will have all of those things. The real question is, what will you do in the midst of that? Hebrews 4, uh, 15 and 16 talks about Jesus being able to sympathize with our weakness. 
says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So the real real question becomes, when you are in that time of need, when you feel like suffering is overwhelming, what do you do? How do you see that Jesus understands every moment of your suffering? How do you understand that? Jesus is the great one who gives great compassion. Uh, So in the first century in 70 AD to uh, the Jews, the destruction of Jerusalem in their mind was the ending of God's care and protection. This was the end of the age. The world was over. If the temple is gone, then God did not protect his people. We have similar thoughts as the residents of Jerusalem. In your mind, it might, you might think because my marriage is failing that God doesn't love me. Because my childhood was stolen, God does not protect. Because my career is destroyed, God does not provide. Because I am lonely, God is not real. Everyone in this room deals with some of those things. What we do is we say, this is my expectation of God, and if he meets this, then I will believe him. What we don't understand, really, in that whole saying, is that God is God, and you and I are not. We are not put in a place to say, God, you fill these things, and then I would just freely believe. Because really, we won't. Because we'll add more things to them. And that's what happened. If the temple's destroyed, what is there that reminds us that God is God and he cares? What we have is God's promise that he cares. And we look at this further down in this passage. The temple as the presence of God could not exist along with Jesus because Jesus is God with us. So what we see is uh, the things that the temple symbolized are things that Jesus perfectly fulfilled. And this is many of our struggle, the sign and the reality. We think if this sign, say it is in your mind, a, a healthy marriage, that that is your sign that God is real. One, you have no argument in Scripture that that is a sign that God is real. You have no promise in that. You have no promise of a long life and no disease. You have no promise of perfect children. But what you have is a promise that God is with you. So as you walk through suffering and destruction, you and I can struggle as a community to hold on to this promise. And ask people, this is what I need to be reminded of. This is what I do not need to be reminded of. I need to be reminded that God sticks to his promise. 
So the temple really needed to be destroyed so that real freedom could be known. Jesus did not communicate everything about this destruction. But he communicated all that we needed to know. And all that those in the first century, in 70 AD, this is what they needed to know. And you can imagine Jesus saying this, and the four disciples listening, their first thing is probably, I have some questions. My house is higher up on the mountain. Am I okay? Can I just stay in my home? Uh, Should I invite other people? Or do I really have to flee my home because it is closer to the mountain? We all want to know more information. And I think this is at the core of our discontent and our struggle with contentment. We struggle with contentment because of providence and our station or stage of life. But we also struggle with contentment because we want more to be communicated to us. And I think to me, that's a bigger issue. I want more answers in my life. And when I get more answers, then I'll be content. The Bible is very clear that some stuff, God does not go into great detail to explain. And so it really lands us at the place of seeking and trusting. And we have a danger if we seek and seek and try to get some kind of secret knowledge of something that God has not provided for answers. Because our mind is, again, if God fulfills this, if he answers everything I seek, well, then I'll trust him. But God says, this is what I'm telling you, and this is my promise to you, and I'm asking you to trust me. I'm asking you to trust me. So we should never be surprised by suffering. We should recognize that our contentment is a battle. Our contentment in where we are in our life, God's providence, but also our contentment in what God has communicated, that it is enough. This next section in here, I think, is where there is a lot of confusion. Um, I'm going to read just 24 through uh, 27, and we'll talk about this specific. I think this is where, going through this passage, many people uh, just take a complete leap, and then everything gets screwed up in this whole passage. And it becomes really, really hard to understand. And you'll see as I read it. Uh, But in those days, after that tribulation, 70 A.D., The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and that he will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Our first thought reading that is the world ends. Can you see that? What we miss is really the context of how this was understood in the first century. And it also points to our uh, struggle in our understanding and knowledge of the Bible. Uh, Those listening, uh, the destruction of of Jerusalem, this to them meant that the world was over. There was nothing left to do if God's presence was taken away. It was it. It was over. 
Um, many of you, well, all of you know, we have an incline. We, like I've ever been to it, never been to it. I see it many times. looks very steep. Uh, many of you have climbed it. Uh, I have not. Um, but uh, to me, this is the illustration that sticks out. Uh, and I'm going to tell it like I climb it, okay? Uh, as I climb the incline, there is a spot that you think is the top. Agree? Okay. See, I've heard that too. And as you're climbing, you see that and go, I'm almost there. I'm almost there. You think that is the end because that's all you know unless someone has told you. But is that the end? It's not. You get there and you realize, (gasps) that's what I would realize. (laughs) There's something greater that's next. But in the moment, you don't see it. Much like you're close to a mountain and you see how huge this mountain is. But you're so close to it, you have no understanding that there's a mountain behind it that's even greater. That actually is another fulfillment or replication of that first mountain. So as the Bible, as our great interpreter, uh, as we look at passages, it's important to, as you read the New Testament, to understand the Old Testament. And we have a phrase we use that something is earth-shattering. It's not really earth-shattering, but in the moment, it is earth-shattering. World War II, earth-shattering. 9-11, earth-shattering. We have this same thing in the Old Testament where these phrases are used. In in, uh, Joshua's dream in Genesis 37, Joshua's dream is that the sun and the moon and the 11 stars bow down. We have a cosmic explanation of an earthly local reality. This celestial imagery was used to represent rulers. Isaiah 13. Let me read this verse. This is about the destruction of Babylon by the Medes and Persians. This is how it's described. Isaiah 13.10. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. A cosmic explanation of an earthly, local reality having to do with leaders and something that is earth-shattering. And that's what we're reading about here. We're reading about people seeing that the destruction of Jerusalem, in their mind, this is the false summit. But they see it as, this is it. But there's something greater behind it that fulfills everything in this passage. It's also in Ezekiel 32 and Amos 5 and Amos 8. This is many times in the Old Testament. And think about this question. Why would Jesus use any other way but Old Testament apocalyptic literature, language, to describe the final destruction and judgment of the greatest nation in the Old Testament. That's really consistent. The greatest nation, the nation that God has blessed. Jesus is describing its destruction. He's obviously going to use imagery that people realize this is, seems like a cosmic earth-shattering event. Something cosmic is happening. 
What is cosmic is the temple is no longer the place that you meet God. What's happening is we meet God in the great mediator, Jesus. And what we have is his Holy Spirit within us. That is a cosmic change in the way that people relate to God. So the description here is about the severity of Jerusalem being destroyed. The world will never be the same. It really is like the sun is darkened and the the stars are falling from the skies. There is no other way to explain it. So then Jesus goes into two sections about the fig tree and that no one knows this day or hour. In the first, about the fig tree, Jesus describes uh, in verse 28, from the fig tree, learn this lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. Uh, It's been getting warm, except for today when we have a snowstorm. But uh, it's been getting very warm, and many of you are looking forward to summer. And you like summer because of the heat. Many of you like summer because of things grow. You can have a garden. Your grass is green. There is beauty all around. And then what happens after the growth season of the summer We go into fall. There's a season of harvest that you can reap and enjoy the slow growth that's happened in summer. And this is the growth of the gospel message. But understand, as we look back, uh, we can say this is the season that the gospel is going forth. And the season has existed from the destruction of the temple. We have the Great Commission. We are to go out and proclaim the good news of God's promise in Jesus. And there is great growth. As you proclaim the message of the good news, uh, this is what we're called to do. Live in this time of growth. Your worry and your hurt and your frustration in this growth season are transformed into rest and peace and forgiveness. And it's transformed not because there's no longer any suffering. It's transformed because the work of Jesus, his death and resurrection, are completed. And now we have this growth season, and what will happen is that Jesus will return. And that's the great promise we hold on to. And this really helps us confront everything in our life. If you are living for everything that you can see, feel, and touch on this world, you're misunderstanding the real purpose of life because all of those things will let you down. There's no promise that they will stay forever. Actually, in here, we have the promise that the heavens and earth will fade away. Jesus says, my words will not pass away. That's a shocking statement to me, and it's, I struggle with believing that, that God's word and truth is more firm than the planet we stand on. That's a hard thing to grasp. But we are being transformed in this time of growth. And then the last section, the command is to stay awake. Do not fall into the trap that uh, 
death and heaven are far-off realities. We are to live wakeful lives. We're to live in this present time understanding this great promise. We're to be attentive to our life patterns. Jesus warns with compassion that we are called to trust and live in faith. He knows your weakness to live as though the world holds all that we need, but he graciously reminds us that it is not, that there are greater promises that shape our life. And this is what we do this morning, is we uh, not just remember God's great promise in communion, uh, we are nourished by his great promise. Uh, This is a great promise that at some point in the future, Jesus will return. And at his return, we will have the great marriage supper of the Lamb. This sign will become a reality. But where we are here, God knows our weakness. And he says, my people, you need a sign. And you need a sign that's so simple. It is bread and wine. And this sign talks about a historical event, the death and resurrection of Jesus. We take it presently today as something that nourishes us, draws us into repentance that we may understand grace, but it is only a sign of something future that is perfect and full and complete. So as we take up communion this morning, I ask you to remember that if you treat communion as the fullness of, of everything in your life. That's not what it's supposed to be. It's a sign and a seal of the fullness of God's promise. Let me read the words of institution as Jesus talks about this Last Supper. He says, as they were sitting, he took bread, and after he blessed it and broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So as we come to this this morning, we come knowing this is a sign of God's great promise. And we come because God knows our weak faith. He knows that in the midst of struggle, we many times want to run so we can control something and hold on to it. Instead of resting in his promise, knowing that he is good and he is ultimately in control, and this earth that we are on in its sinful state is not our great promise of peace. And that is hard for us remember. So Jesus took bread with his disciples and he broke it and he said this is my body which is given for you and he took wine and he said this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Drink of it all of you. His promise is that this points to a great feast that fully fulfills us and completes us We live with that now by faith in a world that is full of suffering and hurt. And so this morning as we come to communion, I invite all of you who say, I hold on to this promise. 
that Jesus forgives my sin and he will return and I am nourishing myself because of his command of grace. If you're here this morning and you don't believe what we just talked about, uh, there are some prayers in your order of worship. And we're very glad you're here. I, we ask that you respect the words of Scripture that we hold very dear. And if you don't believe this promise, we ask that you just you can either remain seated or you are more than welcome to come up and just walk with people or we'd love to pray for you because I imagine you are searching for truth like everyone in this room has been through. If you're a young child and you don't uh, understand what this really means, we ask you to come forward with your family because we'd love to pray for you because you're a part of our community. So I would invite this morning those who are holding the elements to come forward. The way we do communion here is we uh, begin at the back rows and we come forward. And as you come forward, please, uh, we have red wine and white grape juice. And we also have uh, bread, gluten-free bread is cut on the bottom for those of you who have allergies. And if you uh, would like prayer, uh, these people would love to pray for you as you come forward. Or I would love to pray for you also. So it is with great joy that I invite all those who trust in the Lord Jesus to come forward and receive this meal.
you have not uh, taken of the elements, uh, please do. This is uh, the body of Christ, which is given for you to nourish you. This is his blood, which um, he's poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let us continue to praise God that he is not a God of our expectations, but rather he is a God of our hearts. Let's stand together and sing, Christ is risen.
sent out, we're sent out understanding that God is with us. No matter the struggle, the calamity, the destruction that we feel either outwardly or inwardly in our life, He is with us. So please receive the word of the Lord. At the end of Matthew, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen.